All right, good morning, and I hope you have your Bible. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, we're going to look at um, verses 1 through 8 of Matthew chapter 6. This summer we've been making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, this morning's going to be no, no exception as we look at what it means to serve God in a rewarding way in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and I appreciate Pat reading the passage for us this morning, and then we'll spend a little more time reading it as we go along. Rewarding service, rewarding service. Now, to start off with, I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You may have it memorized. I'm going to read it nonetheless. I find when I try to um, quote verses from memory, I, uh, I get them wrong. Um, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Are you ready? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one can boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we can say it relatively safely, we are saved by grace, not by works, but having been saved, we are saved to do good works. We have been saved to live in righteousness. It shouldn't be terribly surprising that the God of righteousness saves people that they may receive His righteousness in order to do righteous things. And this is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 6. He is saying, I want you to serve in rewarding ways, in righteous ways, in fact, ways that result in you receiving a reward, rewarding service in the kingdom of God. Now, a poll was done here not too long ago about why people serve others. That is, why do people volunteer in their community? You can volunteer in a number of ways in the community. You can volunteer at uh, the shelter. You can volunteer in the local school system. You can volunteer uh, in other community service organizations. And, of course, you can volunteer in the church. And so they asked people who volunteered why they volunteered to serve others. So I'm going to give you the top five reasons. Are you ready? in no particular order, although I'm going to start with the number one reason. The number one pe- reason people volunteer to serve in their community is they were invited by a friend. Their friend was going to do some volunteer service. They're going to pick up litter or work in the soup kitchen or volunteer at a school. And they said, hey, well, you want to go with me? They said, well, yeah, I don't have anything else going on. Can't watch Netflix all day. Well, you can. But I shouldn't. So, yeah, sure. So, for no other reason than a friend invited me, and so I'll go with you. Second reason why people serve others, volunteer their time and resources, is because they see a need in the community, a need in the world around them that is moving to them because of the values they have. So, an educator may look at a low literacy or low graduation rates and say, I, uh, I think our community would be well served if our children were doing better in test scores and we're staying in school, and so I'm going to volunteer my time to serve as a tutor uh, in schools that need a math tutor or a reading tutor. Or uh, you, you may be concerned about the ability of those who have been uh, out of the workforce to be able to get a job because they don't have the right clothes and don't know how to interview. And so maybe you volunteer uh, because you want to teach them how to interview and know what kind of things they ought to wear uh, to, a, to a job interview. And so based on values that you have, you see a need and you volunteer to do it, right? Okay, number three, why do people volunteer? Gratitude. 
a sense of thankfulness that earlier in your life, perhaps, you received something from somebody else which was a huge help. Somebody paid for your first semester of college. Somebody paid for a medical procedure. Somebody uh, helped your family out when you were younger. And now having uh, grown up and gotten a job and you have uh, some resources and some time, you say, you know what, out of sense of gratitude, knowing that others helped me, I want to serve others. I'm going to pay it back or maybe even pay it forward. Reason number four, people volunteer time or give money in the community. This is a big one. You ready? Resume building. It looks great on a resume. Employers nowadays love to see uh, potential employees who are involved in the community. It tells them, number one, they're rooted in the community and may be less transient, less uh, getting ready to move after just starting the job. Uh, it shows them that they have maybe some emotional intelligence, and so therefore they might be uh, skilled, on, uh, especially in jobs that require high emotional intelligence. So many people serve and volunteer just so they can put on their resume uh, twice a month, I go down and tutor children in reading. Or twice a month, I go down and teach kids how to code uh, on computers, these sorts of things. So it's good for resume building. Uh, finally, the fifth reason why people volunteer. To be social. Connecting with others. Say, so, well, I know what I'm into. I, I like helping the poor. I like teaching. I like being a part of the community. And I bet if I volunteer my time at this local organization, I'm going to meet other people who also like to do that, and I'll get to make some new friends. Some people make friends in a lot of different ways, but some people say, I'm going to volunteer because it's a way to get to know people. These are all reasons why people serve. Now we should come to the Bible, shouldn't we? Why do we serve God? Because a friend invited me? Because it's good for my resume? Well, because people were nice to me from the church a long time ago, so I should be nice back? I just have to be honest with you. These are all terrible reasons to serve the Lord. They are reasons. They're just not very good ones, and I'll explain why in a minute. But we have to ask this question of this passage, Matthew 6. Why does God call us to serve, and what should we expect from it? Why does God call us to serve, and what should we expect? Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Primarily in the first century, people express service and worship to God in three primary areas. We're going to cover two and a half, one and a half of them today. Two and a half to one and a half, somewhere in there. You can decide at the end. Here are the three ways they primarily served one another religiously in the first century. Giving money, praying, and fasting. Giving money, praying, and fasting. And this passage covers giving money, praying, and fasting because that's the way the people of that time primarily expressed service to God and neighbor. And today we're going to cover giving and half of praying. You're like, how do you do that? I don't know. We'll see. Next time we're in this passage, it won't be next week, we'll cover the other half of praying and fasting. I have no idea how that's going to work, but that's what's going to happen. You ready? Rewarding service. Why should God call us to serve, and what should we expect? Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, thus when you give to the needy. First point, God cares for the poor. God is concerned for the poor. Before we get into why does God call us to serve and what should we expect, we must acknowledge the assumption that Jesus makes about serving through generosity the assumption is that we are giving generously. He is not saying, when you, if you give to the poor, make sure you do it this way. 
His assumption is, is that we are giving generously. In fact, that our generosity is intended to meet needs, and that generosity is expressed in a way that is not condescending. It does not provide expectations of a return. This giving, that is generosity, comes from a heart that says, everything that I have, God has given, and if I give some of God's stuff away, I am still ahead of the game. Let me do the math for you. Your uncle gives you $100. You then give 50 of it away. How much are you up? I did real simple math for you. It depends on if you're cup half empty or cup half full. Many of you are saying, now I've lost 50 bucks. I would have had 100. My potential gain, your loss is compared to with your potential gain. No, we're still up 50 bucks. And what God is doing here is he's saying, I want you to understand everything you own is mine. I have granted it to you to be used, and everything you give away is not a loss. You still have gain. The assumption is God cares for the poor, and the assumption is if our heart is moved by God's heart, we will also be those who give generously. Luke chapter 19, we hear this read of a story of a guy named Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19, Jesus was in the area near Jericho, and there was a man, and his name was Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was Jewish and a tax collector. He was hated by his fellow Jews because in his duties as a tax collector, he was collecting money for Rome. So he was hated by his fellow Jews because he collected money for Rome. He was hated by his fellow Jews because he was rich, because the way a tax collector generated profit was by exacting too high of a tax. There was massive amounts of fraud in the tax collection system uh, in this part of the world at that time, and that was a part of the system. It was designed that way. He was very rich, and he was a tax collector, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but he couldn't see Jesus because he had a lift kit on his F-350. That's not right. Some of you go, what? What do you mean? He was a small man, small in stature. Yeah, now we get it. Now the guy's like, that's not fair. So uh, what he did was he climbed up a sycamore tree. And Jesus is walking by, and here's uh, uh, vertically challenged Zacchaeus up in the tree, peering down to Christ. And Jesus says to Zacchaeus up in the tree, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. I'm going to come to your house for lunch. Meet me there. Didn't ask Israel. He knows where he lives. So he hurried down and received Jesus joyfully. Now, we need to understand, that's the moment where Zacchaeus saw the Messiah and received the Messiah. This is a man who knows he is a sinner and says, the Messiah wants to come into my house and confront the reality of my life. Come on in, because he is the means of righteousness for me. So if you want to know when did Zacchaeus get saved, it's verse 6. He hurried and came down and received Christ joyfully. The sinner receives Christ having done nothing. All the religious people looked down on Jesus and Zacchaeus and grumbled that Jesus had gone in to a sinner's home, which was very distasteful. And Zacchaeus stood before the Lord in his home. 
They're now eating at his table, and, and, and Jesus is sitting in his well-appointed home, eating rich and delicious foods that Jesus probably is not normally eating. And Zacchaeus stood, and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my stuff I give it to the poor. Having drawn near to the Messiah and having the Messiah's heart beating near his heart, his heart now moves in a different frequency and no longer does he need his stuff on his shelves and on his floor and in the walls of his house. The best use of the stuff God gave him was out there. And so he gives half his stuff away. Then, separately, he says this, By the way, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay them back Four times. For every dollar I've taken from somebody, I will pay them four dollars. For every hundred dollars I've taken from somebody, I'll pay them four hundred dollars. And Jesus says, today has salvation has come to this house, not because he gave his stuff away, not because he made right those who were wronged, but because he had received the Messiah, and now his heart was beating differently. The default move of a heart drawing near to the Messiah is a heart of generosity. Generosity in the heart of a believer is the exact opposite of self-oriented gain. The ministry of the gospel in the heart of the believer is a ministry that changes our heart from wanting to serve ourselves with God's stuff and instead moves to serve others with God's stuff. Zacchaeus found Jesus, he saw his heart moved in Jesus' direction, and so he was moved to give. He's moved to be generous. Back to Matthew chapter 6. Giving is a, an act of worship from a heart that has been made alive by the work of the gospel and is moved by Christ to love our neighbor. Read what we read in Matthew 6, 2 through 8. It's the opposite of that. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. Why would you need to sound a trumpet? Don't do as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the street, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've already received their rewards. When you give to the needy the way Zacchaeus did, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Your Father who sees you in secret who sees the movement of your heart, which is moving the way his does, will then reward you. Giving, generosity, is worship from a heart that is made alive by the gospel, which has been moved by the love of Christ for us to reach out in love to those around us. All right, before we move to prayer, I want to reference over 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. You can turn there, turn there if you want. I'm going to hit a couple of highlights from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 because I just want to give you some biblical perspective on what the Bible teaches us about giving stuff away. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Really what we should do is we should preach a 10-week sermon on this in order to do it justice. You're welcome. We're not today. Well, if there's no objections, we'll do it, I guess, but... But what I'm going to do is just hit some high points, draw some observations to give us some more ideas of what the Bible teaches us about generosity. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 1, the grace that God has been given among the churches of Macedonia was this, in a severe test of affliction, 
Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So the Bible calls giving stuff away out of the movement of the gospel in our hearts a movement of grace. That God is gracious enough to allow us to participate in his kingdom by doing something as simple as giving some stuff away. He says that's an act of grace. Verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 8. The Macedonians gave according to their means. The Macedonians were impoverished. The Corinthians could have scrounged out of their couch cushions the amount of money the Macedonians gave in total. Because the Corinthian believers were wealthy and the Macedonian believers were impoverished. What the Bible is telling us is according to what God had given them, they acted generously. They gave according to what God had bestowed on them. In fact, verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 8, they were begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in the uh, relief. That is, there was a famine going on. They were raising money to buy food for the believers in Jerusalem. Verse 5, they gave themselves first to the Lord. That's the model of generosity in the Bible is we first dedicate ourselves to the Lord like Zacchaeus did. Zacchaeus didn't give his stuff away in order to know the Lord. He knew the Lord, and so therefore he was moved in generosity to help others. 2 Corinthians 8, 7. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, and in our love for you, see also that you excel in this act of grace, that is generosity also. The Bible calls us as believers to see how good we can get at being a generous. A couple more verses to hit on down in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 and 7. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. God wants our heart in generosity to be moved not by compulsion, not by obligation, but rather to be moved by the things that move God in generosity. So we'll sum it up this way. Giving in the Bible is generosity that is according to our means, is done joyfully, is done faithfully, is done regularly, is done earnestly, in fact, to meet needs in our community and to meet ministry needs of the local body of believers. Luke 21, beginning in verse 1. Luke 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you this, uh, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. And Jesus here describes the tension of generosity, and here's the two tensions. Are you ready? When we're impoverished and we want to be generous, it's difficult because we have to buy milk and prescriptions and cereal. I had, as you can tell, cereal and milk for breakfast. That's difficult. The widow is putting her faith in God. This is not easy. This, we should not blow past the difficulty this widow faced. Giving and being generous in impoverishedness creates the tension of, will I have enough to make it? That's a real tension. On the other hand, the tension of being generous in our wealth is this. 
For most of us, generally, if you call the United States your home, you would have to give away an enormous amount of your income in order to sacrifice. I, I mean, I don't want to be rude. But most of us, by God's grace, we can celebrate it in many ways. We have the opportunity to be generous with our stuff and still go on vacation. Still have a car that runs half the time. Still put paint on the house and buy clothes at the appropriate season. These are all great benefits. But the tension it creates for us is we say, well, I want to give sacrificially. The widow can do that by just getting up in the morning. The tension for the wealthy is this, Jesus is saying, how will they participate in generosity that is also sacrificial? I'm not telling you what to do on that one. My job is to read the Bible and let it bother you. You're welcome. Let's finish this up back in Matthew chapter 6 and hear Jesus' call to being rewarded, experiencing the reward of generosity. He is saying this, Our generosity should come from a place that is moved by the gospel of Christ, where we have no need for recognition, only the understanding that we participate in the kingdom of God with God through generosity. We don't need others to know. We don't need to be recognized. We don't need our name on the wall. We don't need our name in a booklet. We, because the Father sees what we do, and He knows the movement of our heart. Jesus is not saying here that generosity requires anonymity, I abbreviated it in my notes. I don't even know how to say it. It doesn't require that no one know. But it must be a heart that says, I don't care if anyone knows. Because I'm doing this for my Father. And I must, in the heart that is moved by grace and the gospel of Christ, avoid at all costs being generous merely to be known as one who gives. Rewarding service. Why would we serve God through generosity, because God cares for the poor, and we want our hearts moved by what moves His heart. All right, let's look at prayer. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. God hears our prayer. Why does God want us to serve Him through prayer? Because He hears our prayer. Two teenage boys, two different cities. One wanted to impress his love interest, a girl who lived in another apartment near him, and they lived in a high-rise apartment over in Europe. He decided to impress her by climbing from his balcony to her balcony in the apartment. He wanted her to notice him. He slipped and fell 200 feet. You would think it would have killed him. <laughs> the humiliation must have. He landed on the roof of a car, which then crushed the car, of course, but the action of the roof collapsing under him slowed him and cushioned his fall to such a degree he had to go to the hospital, had a couple of broken bones, but he's no worse for wear after a while. Survived the fall. Certainly the girl noticed him. Another fella had convinced this girl to go up on the roof of the row houses there 
who knows what goes on up there, probably watching the submarine races. Young kids, ask your mom and dad. Anyway, these row houses weren't connected like they sometimes are. There was about 12 to 18 inches between the houses, and he was impressing her by leaping back and forth. You know where this is going. He slipped. He ended up wedged between these two houses in a space about 12 inches wide. She noticed him. He was there for eight hours. Finally, the fire department had to destroy the interior wall of one of the buildings and drag him into the building to save him. We had the, they had this desire. We want to be noticed. I, I hope she pays attention to me. They did. I bet you they told them, I'm going to look for somebody who has a better lifespan than you guys. This is how we approach prayer. God, does he notice? How will he notice us? Is he paying attention to us? This has been going on through all of history. Back in the Old Testament, Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal to pray to their god, Baal, and he would pray to his god, the god of Israel, and whichever god answered by eating, uh, consuming the offering by fire uh, would be uh, proclaimed as god. So the prophets of Baal arranged their sacrifice uh, on the altar, and they prayed from morning till noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. They limped around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah called out to them, Cry louder. He must be God. He must be musing. What does that mean? He's watching Netflix. Or he's in the bathroom. You think I'm kidding? No. Or he's relieving himself. Ball must have had to go to the bathroom. Maybe he's on a journey, and he forgot to buy a worldwide global plan for his cell phone. Maybe he's asleep and must be wakened. And so then their fury got even worse. They cried aloud. They cut themselves with swords and lances, and blood was flying out. As midday passed... Nothing happened. It was Elijah's turn. He arranged his altar with water, and he prayed this prayer. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God, that I'm your servant, and I've done these things according to your word. Answer me, O Lord, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back, and God consumed his offering with fire from heaven. God heard Elijah's humble prayer because Elijah's prayer was right in line with what God was up to. Elijah prayed God's purposes, prayed for God's provision, prayed for God's power, and he did so because he knew what God was up to, and God heard his prayer, and the false god of Baal did not hear the wailings of the false prophets. Jesus understood this and wanted to explain this to us in detail. He told the parable of the Pharisee. Here's the Pharisee who sounds just like the prophets of Baal, the religious person. The Pharisee prayed this way, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector, standing way far away, wouldn't even look up. He beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, whose prayer was heard? That tax collector who understood that he needed God's mercy. God, have mercy on me. And God heard his cry for mercy. God hears our prayer. God hears what's going on in our hearts, and God listens, and it doesn't require heaping up of words upon words or finding the magic formula to unlock God's ears. God hears our prayer, 
just as he heard the prayers of Christ, who would often in his ministry, daily I would presume, sneak off to desolate places to pray. Prayer is this. It is a heart moved to worship God, to worship God through Christ, a heart that has been made alive to the gospel that says, I believe I am a son and daughter of the king and he hears me. He is paying attention to me. He cares me for me. He loves me and he is more interested in what I am praying about than I am. It's an act of worship that comes from faith that says Christ is as good and kind and generous as he actually says that he is. We pray not merely to do something religious. We pray because God hears us. The goal of our prayer is to spend time with God. Here's what prayer is. Prayer is a conversation with God where we agree with everything that God says. And then we argue with him, and then we agree that you're right. If you wonder if it's okay to get upset at God, read the Psalms. Half of them, David's mad at God. God, where are you? No, seriously, God, I'm, I'm wondering if you even exist. And then by the end of the psalm, he's always saying this, Oh, great and righteous is God. It is a conversation where we bear our soul to God himself, and then God by his spirit moves in us through his word and his spirit that we finally say, You know what, God, you're right. Your way is better. I don't know what I'm talking about. Prayer is not a chant. Prayer is not an incantation. Prayer is not magic. There is no magic formula of words that will get God to do, do for you what you want him to do. Prayer is worth when a child comes to their father and says, God, I don't know what to do with this. And then God gives an answer, and we don't like it. Ever, God, ever had God answer your prayer and you get annoyed with it? If not, it's fine, it's coming. I would not suggest that Jesus was annoyed with God's answer to his prayer, but he gave words for what that feels like. Take this cup from me. You know, but not my will, but yours be done. God hears our prayer. The religious people that Jesus was addressing weren't so concerned that God would hear their prayer. They were more concerned that people around them would hear their prayers that they would hear their heaping up of words and their soliloquies and their uh, flowery language. And Jesus said, this is not prayer. This is not a heart move to worship God. When you pray, not if you pray, when you pray, go into your closet, close the door and say, God hears me. So here's the cool thing about giving money away and for praying. Are you ready? This is the cool thing. You always get rewarded. Okay, you can write that down. All your prayers and all of your giving are rewarded. The question will be this, who will be rewarding you? So there's the last piece of this puzzle. Look at verse 1 of Matthew 6 with me. Beware practicing your righteousness before other people, for you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Here's my last point, and really the main point that I want to make today. God rewards best. God rewards best. So this passage is a warning passage. Not really a a warning on judgment, but this is a warning passage that wants to make sure, Christ wants to make sure 
that we don't miss out on the best reward. He's saying, you're going to get rewarded. This is guaranteed. The question is, you're going to get a good reward or you're going to get a lame reward. God's rewards are the best rewards. Okay, look at verses 2 and verse 2 and verse 5 of Matthew 6. Both the uh, givers and the prayers get rewarded. End of verse 2. Those who are blowing trumpets with their generosity. Truly, what's it say? I say to you, they have received their reward. Do you see that? So those who give their money and then make a big announcement about it, and their primary concern is that everybody knows how much money they're giving away, Jesus is saying, they're rewarded. Good for them. Look at the end of verse 5. Those who pray merely to be noticed, they don't care much about God's participation, merely to be noticed, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So those who are generous and those who are praying for no other reason than to be seen by others, Jesus is saying, you've got your reward. Your reward is the recognition you receive from others, having seen your generosity and having seen your prayer. So let me give you two problems to this reward. Are you ready? First problem, if you're doing things to merely impress others, be affirmed by others, have others like you, here's the first problem. It's not real. They don't like you. You do something to impress others, to get them to like you. Here's the problem. They don't. They like what they see. Ooh, that's very generous of you. Ooh, that's very thoughtful of you. But they don't like you because you have put up for them some image of you that you want them to see, and they have seen that image that you have put up of yourself, and they love that image, but that image isn't you. As one author has said this, if they really knew me, would they still love me? And the fact is, we all know they wouldn't. When we're doing things to impress others, we're doing those things because we know if they knew the real me, they wouldn't be impressed. So I'll write a big check or I'll make a big long prayer. The problem is, I don't feel loved because they love somebody else. That person that they're uh, adoring and affirming, that person doesn't exist. And when I go home and go to bed at night, my head hits the pillow, I know it. They don't know it, but I know it. So problem number one, when we do things to impress others, to make others like us, problem is they don't like us. They like someone who doesn't exist. Second problem, if that wasn't enough, here's a little secret secret to trying to impress people. Are you ready? Here's the secret. You all know this. They will always want more. Always. If I just do this, they will be impressed. Yes. Yes. And then they will ask the age-old question, which is what? What have you done for me lately? If you are living your Christian life in order to be affirmed by others, I guarantee you, and they may not do it on purpose, it will never be enough. So if you're seeking to be rewarded by others noticing how much you give or noticing how much you pray, It will never be enough. You will never feel love because they love someone who doesn't exist, and those people will never be impressed enough. The reward of Christ is better. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 18. 
Paul says this, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Is life hard? Only on days that end in why? And Paul says the reward of Christ is this, that when we get there and encounter that reward, we will say, oh, that suffering was nothing. Christ's reward is better. The creation waits eagerly for the glory to be revealed in us that God is going to do in and through us. Those people you're trying to impress, they give you this reward. They're impressed with you for about 30 seconds. And then they either find out who you really are or they expect more. Jesus does something different. He knows exactly what you're like in the secret places of your heart. I mean, exactly what you're like. In fact, he knows what you're like better than you do. There are things you haven't done because Jesus is just so gracious to have kept you from having the opportunity. And he knows every bit of that muck. And he says, What? Come into my reward. Come into my reward. I love you. I will restore you. I will renew you. I love you. Not this fake person that you project to others. I love the you that exists. And in your heart beating with my heart beating, I want you to come into my reward which lasts forever. That's a better reward. Why is it a better reward? Any reward observers will give you is a reward that you have earned. It is not generous. When somebody affirms you for something good you have done, you deserve it. When Jesus rewards you, this is the appropriate response. Oh, this is too much. Are you serious? I didn't do it. I didn't do that much, Jesus. I woke up. He says, yeah, but you woke up so good. I mean, look at you all awake and stuff. And he gives us his glory. That's a better reward. Because he is a better savior. I'm running out of time. And the problem I have when I run out of time is that I don't care. I don't want you to, I don't want you to get the wrong impression that I feel like I have to rush. The problem is I don't feel like I have to rush. So 2 Corinthians 12. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. But he heard things that cannot be told, things which may, he, man may not utter. He saw heaven and said, whoa. And people said, what did it look like? And he said, I don't know. He said, what do you mean you don't know? He said, you try describing blue to a blind man. I, there's not words for it. You have no idea what's coming. This is a good reward. What he has prepared for us is the kind of thing when we see it, we say, why was I so settled on such lame stuff for so long? First Corinthians three. We're going to conclude with First Corinthians three.
Again, talking about reward. Paul says this, Who then is Apollos? Apollos was another preacher. Who is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered. God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. But God who gives the growth is the one that matters. So he's saying this, Let each one of us take care how we build on the foundation of Christ. For no one can lay on a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest on the day of the Lord because it will be revealed with fire. Fire will test the sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a what? Reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but just as one who is leaping through the fire. So what Paul is saying here is, we want to serve God from a heart that beats in time with God that we might receive a reward. When we seek to serve and be generous and to be prayers in order to impress others, we just build up on this foundation of Christ a great hay house, built of wood, hay, and straw. We've impressed a lot of people for a long time. It may be a very, very, very big house. It's just made out of wood, hay, and stubble because we've been working very hard to please others, and pretty soon, even a 747 super tanker retardant jet wouldn't put that fire out. It's going to burn down. Now, when we serve God out of a love of Christ, moved by the things of Christ, seeking to generously give and to generously pray because we love God and we love His people, we build upon that foundation a reward that will never fade. And he is saying, the way in which we receive this reward is to analyze our motivation and say, I want my heart to be moved by the things of God, not moved to be seen by others. He concludes this way in 1 Corinthians 4, this is how we should be regarded as servants of Christ and stewards of his mysteries. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful, that is, doing God's things his way, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So what Paul is saying is it is a matter of our heart. Are we moved by the things of God? And even Paul says, oftentimes, even our greatest service to God comes from a, a place of mixed motives. And so, again, we rest in the grace of God. The reward of God should move us to be moved by the things of God and in humility be generous and be those who pray for one another. All right, so three things and we'll close with this. First thing, God rewards best, so therefore give. Support gospel ministry, support gospel churches, support gospel missions, give to the poor, be hospitable in your home. Invite your neighbors over and buy the best cut of meat. Pacific Northwest. I've got to reframe that. Invite your neighbors over and get the most expensive thing that vegans eat. I, I, don't, I don't know what that is, but I'm sure there is that. If you're not a vegan and your neighbor is, how do I suck it up, buttercup? Serve them the best vegan meal that you can have catered because you're not going to know how to cook it. Besides, it can't be cooked in your meat-stained pans anyway. No, I'm serious. It can be. You need to check up on that. Give. Be generous. 
Live in the tension of wondering whether if I'm giving too much or wondering if I'm not giving enough. Live in the tension that says, what do I do to be sacrificial? Live in the tension of saying, what does it look like if I acknowledge that everything I own is God's? So hard questions to answer. Pray that God would give you wisdom. Second, pray. Pray for one another every single day. Pray for one another that we would be uh, delivered from temptation. Pray for one another that when we sin, we would experience the love of Christ even in the midst of failure. Pray for one another that we would bask in the love of Jesus day in and day out. Pray for one another that we would have our needs met. Pray for one another that we would have boldness to share the gospel with our neighbors. Pray for the body of Christ that we would grow in effectiveness in reaching the lost in the city of Medford. Pray for other churches in the valley that they may be effective in proclaiming the gospel. Pray. What would Jesus do? Jesus would pray. Finally, pursue God's heart. Find out what makes God's heart beat the way it does and be moved by what moves his heart. The only way to do that is to be in his word. Read about him. Read what he's up to and allow his heart to move yours. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the grace we have in you through the cross. God, we thank you that you are a generous God, that you did not withhold anything for us, that instead, God, you were moved by compassion and grace for rebels like us and sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. We give you the praise and glory for that, Lord. God, we ask in this moment as we seek to know you and your purposes that you would allow us your wisdom to know how can we worship you through generosity and through prayer. God, save us from our arrogance. Allow us to worship you, not because we want recognition, but because we love you. God, give us the faith to rest and trust in you and you alone. We ask that you would accept our worship from a heart of love and grace. And God, I pray for those who are here today who don't know you. I just ask God that in this moment they have heard and seen of your generosity that you are moved to reach down to sinners and rebels. That you want to provide your salvation through Christ alone to all who would receive it. And I pray even in this moment, you might stir in their heart faith to trust Christ for forgiveness and new life. God, we pray as we worship you with a final song and a benediction, we pray as we worship you through the offering that you would uh, receive our worship that it would bring you pleasure, and that you would be glorified in what we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.